We are working our way through Philippians, passage by passage. We are in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Let's pray. God, as we have read this short passage that is uh, so full of spiritual meat, but I pray that uh, we would all feast upon it. And in so doing, grow up in our salvation and grow up in our walk with Jesus Christ. We ask in His name, Amen. When I first came to Westminster, we had a softball team. And uh, after I hit a couple of home runs, I thought Rip was going to give me a raise after my first six weeks at the church. Um during that time, the bat also flew out of my hand and hit Jim Belisario in the head and took his flesh and peeled it back uh, a few inches, so maybe that tempered uh, things a bit. Um, I enjoy hitting softballs. And softballs are easy to hit, but my real, um, my real specialty is hitting fastballs. Uh, if I have one real... Uh, sort of unique talent. It is my ability to see and turn on a fastball. Um, my senior year in high school, we were playing against the mighty Noonan Cougars, Noonan High School. And they were a quad A school, and we were just a little puny single A school. Noonan at the time was um, undefeated and ranked first in the state at the highest classification, but we had our ace on the mound uh, in the game that we played them. And we went into extra innings tied one-to-one. -one. And so I came to bat, and I was guessing that I would see a fastball. But when the pitcher delivered the pitch, immediately, even as it was coming out of his hand, I recognized that he was turning his hand over and was, giving, was throwing a, a, a curveball and, um, and since I'm a left-handed batter, although I'm right-handed throwing and everything else, since I'm a left-handed batter, I could recognize, um, recognize that pretty easily. And so immediately I knew that I would have to, to wait a little longer for the pitch since I wasn't getting a fastball. So I took a deep breath. And then time seemed to stand still. It's not really happened to me before or, or since that time. Um, it is the, the oddest sensation. I saw the ball spinning as a curved ball. And as I'm watching it, it didn't break. It just stayed on a flat plane about a little over belt high right down the middle of the plate. And uh, this is what they call uh, in baseball a hanging curveball. It's a mistake for the pitcher to pitch a hanging curveball. And this baseball looked like a watermelon that was up there, just, just floating in front of the plate. 
The hardest part of hitting the ball was waiting for it to get to the plate. But once it got there, I crunched it. Uh, we were playing on Noonan's Field, but for some reason we were the home team. I, I can't remember why we would be. Maybe because they were the big bad school and and uh, didn't want to travel to our place, so they gave us right of being home home team even on their field. Um, their their field is um, also doubles as the practice field for the football team. So instead of having a regular home run fence, you know, and it being, you know, kind of semicircular, the center field goes out to a point, and so it's quite a ways away. And uh, I hit it to center center field, and uh, thought well, it wasn't going to go over the fence, but it cleared the uh, outfielders easily, rolled all the way into the corner. And um, there was one problem. The problem was Mark Bettis was on first base. His nickname in high school was Boots because he was such a slow runner. In fact, I I caught up with him right after he rounded second base. Uh, I could have pushed him around the bases, but I think I would have been out if I would have touched him. I don't really know the rule. So what I ended up doing was walking into third for a triple. And Mark scored on a bang-bang play at the plate, and we won. I'm telling you this story because when I read this short passage of Scripture, um, I feel like I'm seeing a hanging curveball. This passage is a preacher's dream, or should I say a Calvinist preacher's dream passage. I could preach for another two months just on this passage. But I recognize that Boots Bettis is on first base, that uh, I can't go on for two months on this passage. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to settle this morning for one short, yet I believe very, very, very important point. Um, And... And this is going to be a short enough sermon because I want you to get this point. That I think it would be the shortest one I've ever preached uh, were it not for the opening baseball story. Uh, But I believe it is one of the most important passages that I've ever preached from this pulpit. So, I say all that to say I want your undivided attention for the next 12 to 15 minutes maybe 17 minutes or 20. (laughs) Um, Before we get into the passage, I want to make a couple of introductory remarks. Uh, First of all, this passage is a perfect example of what we call biblical mathematics. Biblical mathematics, doing biblical mathematics is not exactly how we uh, do mathematics. When you add God to the equation... It tends to change things a bit. For instance, how do we describe the Trinity? We say 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 1. Three persons in the Godhead, one God. Or, when we talk about the dual nature of Christ, we say that Christ is fully human and fully divine. 
Yet, one person, not two people. Or, um, when we say that God saves us, we say that God is 100% sovereign in our salvation and we are 100% responsible. Uh, We are 100% responsible to believe the Gospel. But God gives us the faith to believe. And so there's God's 100%, our 100%. It doesn't equal 200%. Rather, that also equals 100%. And then when we talk about the Bible, the Bible is 100% God's Word. It's also 100% man's Word. Yet we don't have two books. We don't have two levels of faith. Rather, we have one book that is entirely God's Word and man's Word. Um, Emphasizing, of course, um, God's part in that. And it is 100% um, inerrant, inspired, and authoritative. All this 100%, 100% equals 100% uh, doesn't doesn't make sense to us oftentimes. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, in fact, oftentimes we get into the error of thinking, well, <coughs> excuse me, we've got to do our 25% and God adds His 75%, or we've got to do our 5% and God adds His 90%. That's not the way it works. 100%, 100% equals 100%. It doesn't make um, full sense to us sometimes, but that should not surprise us. Because you cannot fit the infinite God into your pea brain. Neither can I. In fact, if we could figure God out, God wouldn't be God. Or either we'd be God. Because the finite cannot fully grasp the infinite. The second introductory remark Uh, has to do with the meaning of these two verses. People tend to read these two verses here in verses 12 and 13 um, in a strictly, with a strictly individualistic meaning. Typically people see Paul uh, speaking about individual sanctification. In other words, most people believe that Paul is saying to each individual that they are to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in them as an individual, both to will and to do, or will and to work, according to His good pleasure. But this passage is not focused on the individual primarily. I think you can make applications to the individual. I'm going to make applications to the individual this morning. But this passage is speaking beyond the individual. This passage is speaking to the church as a whole, to the church collectively. You see this in verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, or as it literally says, therefore, my brothers. He's not speaking to one brother. He's speaking to everybody. And brothers here includes men and women. It includes boys and girls. 
Um, and, and if you look at verse 14, I think verse 14 uh, really clarifies this. Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. In other words, Paul is still on this topic of church unity. He is speaking to the entire church. And Paul is saying to the church, you must work at being unified as a church even when he's not there. And that's what he says in verse 12. Uh, not only uh, in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work at being unified as a church. Why? Because God, verse 13, God is at work in you as a church. Paul equates church unity with the church's salvation because if they are unwilling to love each other as Christ loved the church, and how did Christ love the church? Ephesians chapter 5, He gave Himself up for the church and died on that awful Christ, on that awful cross. So if people in the church are unwilling to love each other as Christ loved the church when He gave Himself to die on the cross, then their salvation is a sham, a fraud, a charade. 1 John 1, nine. One nine or two nine. Uh, it always happens when I try and fire from the hip. Um, you never know where the bullet's going to go. Uh, it's either in First John one nine or two nine. The Bible says very clearly: How can you say that you love God if you don't love your brother? And so it is a very serious matter if you are unwilling to forgive or to serve or to love everyone else in this congregation. Or to put it more positively, you must work, to use Paul's uh, language in verse 12, you must work at forgiving, work at serving, work at loving everyone else in this congregation, especially those whom you find it most difficult to love. The good news here is that you are not left to yourself to love those who are difficult to love. And this brings me to the point that I want to make most strongly and most robustly this morning. And that is, you can do everything that God calls you to do. Obedience is possible for the Christian. Change in your life is possible for the Christian. Overcoming sin, even habitual sin, is possible. Why is it possible? Verse 13, because God is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit, and He's not an impersonal force, he is the third person of the Trinity. In other words, when you become a Christian, God Himself comes and takes up residence in your soul. And He is at work in you every moment of every day. He neither sleeps nor slumbers. Even when your thoughts and your desires are not focused on, on Him, He is focused on you. 
I'm going to resist giving you a mini theology of sanctification or an overview of the work of the Holy Spirit this morning. If you want to know how the Holy Spirit works, how He sanctifies you, how He makes you more like Jesus, how He makes it possible for you to obey Him, what I'm going to do is give you a little homework assignment. Read John chapters 14 through 16, so chapter 14, 15, and 16, and Romans 8. And read these four chapters several times this week. Meditate on them. And what you will learn will be more helpful to you than, I can say, than anything I can say here in this sermon. But my point to you this morning is that you can do everything that God calls you to do. In fact, I'm going to go further. To deny that you can obey God or to think that you cannot give up a sinful habit is to deny and disrespect God. Is God all-powerful? Is God at work in you? Then why aren't you able to obey Him? If you still say that obedience and change is not possible in your life, then I must ask, is God really at work in you? Look at verse 12. Do you see here at the end of verse 12 where He says, uh, work out your salvation with fear and with trembling? The reason Paul in, uh, inserts this little phrase, fear and trembling, is because it is an awful thing to deny God's work in your life. He promises that He is going to work. And for you to say obedience is optional or obedience is unnecessary or obedience is impossible and yet God says He is at work in you bringing His will and His work to bear on your life, to change you, to make you more like Jesus, for you to deny that, that is something that make, that ought to make you fear and tremble. To deny God who is living in your soul, to deny His power... But I can hear some of you asking, well, doesn't Paul say the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh? For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do? Absolutely, Paul says that. Paul says that in Galatians 5.17. But do you know what Paul says in the verse immediately preceding it? In Galatians 5.16? He says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So even though verse 17 says it seems impossible to obey God, verse 16 says it is very possible. In fact, if you walk according to the Spirit, if you walk according to the third person of the Godhead who has taken up residence in your soul, who is at work in you both to will and to do according to His good purpose, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
I want you to hear me closely because it's going to be easy. It's going to be easy for you to misunderstand what I'm saying because I'm talking about some biblical mathematics here. It is impossible for us to obey God. It is impossible for us to repent of any sin, much less overcome any any habitual sin in our own strength. Jesus says, without me you can do nothing. John 15.5, if you're reading through, if you take me up on that assignment of John 14, 15, 16, and Romans 8, you'll see in John 15.5, right in the middle, Jesus says, without me you can do nothing, but with me you will bear fruit. We are 100% impotent when it comes to obeying God in and of ourselves. But because God is at work in us, changing our wills and our desires, empowering our actions, then we can obey. In fact, in regard to obedience, we are more more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We're going to get to the end of Philippians and we're going to read uh, the Apostle Paul saying, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's what God has promised to do. That's what God has pro- is promising to do in your life right now as a believer. Verse 13, are you going to deny His power? For it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to His good pleasure. That's what God says He is doing in the lives of of believers. We can obey Him. Does it mean that we become sinless in this life? No, of course not. Does it mean we won't struggle with temptation to sin daily or even moment by moment? No, we'll always continue to struggle with temptation. We'll always continue to struggle with sin. And we will fail daily but we can obey and we will build a pattern of obedience into our lives, but it won't be us and our strength. It will be the result of God working in you. How does Ephesians 2.10 go? Um, well, I've got to start with verse 8. Since I'm... For it is by grace you are saved, through faith, this not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do the good works which He prepared in advance for us to do. When we do good works for God, it is because He has prepared us and He is working in us. And so all the glory goes back to Him. I bet some of you are really confused right now because I'm talking about 100% ability and I'm talking about 100% inability. Uh, And I'm doing it in the same breath. And so I know some of you would like for me to say a little bit more about this dynamic to take away some of the confusion. I'm not going to do it now. The good news is we'll get to it in Romans uh, I mean, in Philippians 3, the second half of Philippians 3, the bad news is that at this pace we'll get to the second half of Philippians 3 sometime just before Christmas. Um, so to assuage you, 
Uh, let me read the relevant passage in, in Philippians 3, verses 12 through 16. Here's the Apostle Paul struggling, or, or rather giving voice to the 100% ability and the 100% inability. He says, "...not that I have already obtained this or already uh, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own." See that? Why does He press on? Because Christ Jesus has made Him His own. Brothers, I do not consider uh, I have made it... Brothers, I do not consider I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those uh, who are mature think this way, and if if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So is it clear now? Yeah, I didn't think so. (laughs) I'm going to make a few brief applications and we'll be finished. The first application is there's a lot of wrong theology out there that makes obedience optional or less necessary. How can I say it any more clearly? Reject all that type of teaching. God's intent in saving you is to make you in your thinking and in your conduct, more like Jesus Christ. The Great Commission, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or to obey all things I have commanded. And listen to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. God doesn't relax the need for obedience. He saves us apart from obedience. Actually, He saves us in obedience, but not our obedience. It was the obedience of Jesus Christ and His perfect righteousness and going to the cross in our place. And God, when we come to Jesus, God counts Jesus' righteousness to our account. And so, our obedience before God looks perfect. Because it is perfect. Not because it's our obedience, but because it's Jesus' obedience that is given to us. But now, He has saved us to make us into who we are. We are righteous in Christ. Now He is making us righteous in our thinking and in our actions and in our desires and our motives. So reject all forms of teaching that make obedience optional or less necessary. Second application... God is not just sitting up in heaven saying, okay, now that I've saved you, show me how much you love me by your obedience. That's not what He's doing at all. Rather, verse 13, He is at work in your life. Your growth in obedience is really God's grace operating in your life. You are seeking to obey God because God is loving you. You are seeking to obey God from the standpoint of you being forgiven, you being accepted, you being a dearly loved child of God. And God the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in your soul. 
Anything you do good for God is because God is at work in you. Third application. Since growth and grace is God's work in us, then prayer is absolutely necessary. We need God's help and God loves it when we lean upon Him. He loves it when we ask Him for that help that we need. And then the fourth and last application. The Lord's Supper is a visual reminder that God lives in us. The reason He has us ingest the contents of the cup and eat the bread is to remind us that He has taken up residence in our souls and He is at work in us. And so as you celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, do so remembering that God is at work in you. And as you celebrate His grace, it is because His grace is operating in your life. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray that You would help us to honor and to glorify You by uh, living for You, for, by loving You with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. The very fact that we are weak and helpless does not um, release us from our obligation to obedience. Rather, because You love us and are at work in us, You are bringing about our transformation to be more like Jesus Christ. And so I pray that You would work in us. Encourage the downcast. Cast down the prideful. Help us all to flee to the Lord Jesus and cling to Him, for He is our life and His Spirit is at work in our souls. We pray in His name.